following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, looking this evening as that, at that phrase from the creed, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead, looking at it from this particular text, especially referring to others as well, continuing in this series on the Apostles' Creed. Here, the Word of God, Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we, also, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, grant us understanding. We cry out to you. We need to have our eyes opened to the richness of your word and how it applies to us this day and this week. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. It's been called the last miracle of Christ. His glorious second coming at the end of history. What an event! It's really a, a scene that's almost impossible to imagine, isn't it? Here's how I try to think of it. Think of the most impressive sunset you've ever seen. Shafts of light breaming from bright clouds with red and orange, yellow, as if heaven itself had opened to us. And along with that beautiful sunset, picture the most stirring music you've ever heard. 
hear it in your ear. Maybe a theme from your favorite hymn with a great orchestra and organ swelling to the final crescendo with trumpets blaring at the final stanza. And then add to that the picture that every believer you've ever known and every believer that has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the history of the world is there with you taking it in. People that you haven't seen for 20 or 30 or 40 years. But there they are with you, loved ones who have who've died. And there they are in joyful reunion. Not only all of that, but there are angels. There are thousands of these heavenly beings in joyful assembly, now visible. We've, we've never seen them in this life, but now we see them as they attend the return of the King of Heaven. But of course, the supreme glory is Jesus Christ himself, robed in glory. He's present there, and somehow each one of us sees him face to face, and sin is no more. And every trace of brokenness and sorrow and pain forever flee away. And all those who know Christ by faith are received into eternal blessing in the new heavens and in the new earth. And those apart from Christ are cast into everlasting darkness. As the song puts it, my Lord, what a morning that is. We just sang Rutherford's great hymn, And just to think about the way he says, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. Rutherford says, I will not look at glory, but on the face of Jesus Christ, my Lord. And so the creed sums up this incredible event with these words, From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, from heaven to which he had ascended, and from which he he reigns and rules even now. From thence, Jesus Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. The return of Christ is indisputably taught in Scripture. There are 260 chapters of Scripture in the New Testament, and Christ's return is mentioned no less than 318 times in those chapters. Interesting, isn't it? Statistically, one verse in every 25 of the New Testament mentions the Lord's return. The only books that don't mention the second coming are the small letters of second and third John and the epistle to the Galatians. Jesus himself often spoke of his return. He challenged followers to take up their cross and follow him and warned in Mark 8, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Later in Mark 13, he says, At that time, at the time of his return, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. The very first chapter of Revelation contains John's solemn declaration. He says, Look, he, Jesus Christ, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So let us consider this evening the return of Christ from our text in 2 Thessalonians 1. And I want us to see two main points that we'll look at, and each will have some sub-points. But the the two main points are Christ will come as the awesome judge, 
And secondly, Christ will come as the comforter of his people. He will come as the awesome judge, and he will come as the comforter of his people. First then, Christ will come as the awesome judge. As we look at 2 Thessalonians, it's important to know something of the context of this young church to which Paul was writing. Here were these new believers. They hadn't been in Christ for long, only a matter of months or a few years at the most. And their Christian experience, we find in, in the book of Acts chapter 17, began with persecution. There's a riot as Paul preaches and ministers there, and a mob comes out. And this mob is incited against the Christians in Thessalonica. And Paul has to flee the town, and some of the leaders of this fledgling church are dragged to the city officials by this mob. I've never personally experienced a mob. Maybe some of you have. I've seen footage of it on television news. But uh, it must be a terrifying thing. They talk about mob psychology. You just don't know what's going to happen when a mob starts to act. It's like people lose their minds, especially if you're the target of a mob, if you're the brunt of it. And so that was the context in which this young church began its walk with Christ. Not an easy circumstance. And we aren't told exactly how the persecution is continuing at this point, but verse 4 makes it clear that it is still very difficult. Notice he says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So clearly these young believers had been called to be faithful to persevere, to keep trusting their Savior and Lord, and to live holy lives unto him in the face of much opposition. But with that context, Paul begins to set forth how the reality of the certain return of Jesus Christ should impact these new Christians. And the clear theme of Christ's coming as the ultimate judge is very clear here. It rings out here from this text. Paul begins to talk about the return of Christ, about the judgment of God, and notice what he says in verses 7, 8, and 9. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Very sober, very solemn words here. But the inescapable truth here and in many other texts is that when Jesus comes, he will judge the world. Jesus will be the judge of the world. And notice how verse 8 points out the ultimate criteria for this judgment. In other words, well, how can anyone stand in such a judgment as it's being declared here? And it's really describing one group, and there are two phrases in this verse 8 to describe this one group. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those 
And the two phrases are, who do not know God, the second phrase, and on those who do not obey the gospel. Who do not know God, which is equivalent to do not obey the gospel. In other words, obey the gospel in the sense of believe the gospel. The New Testament speaks of it both ways. It's usually believe the gospel, but there are places where it's called obeying the gospel, hearing it and obeying it by trusting in Christ. And so if you want to ask, do I know God? The question could be also phrased, have I obeyed the gospel? Have I believed the gospel? And so the first sub-point here, the first thing we learn about Christ's judgment is that faith in Christ is the only refuge His judgment is going to fall on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel, have not obeyed the gospel. The only thing that's going to matter when the trumpet sounds and the Lord Jesus is revealed in blazing fire is this. Are you, am I, in Christ by faith in him? That's the only criteria that matters. Revelation 20.15 puts it this way. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In other words, you're either in the book of life by believing the gospel or you're not. If you're not, if you haven't trusted Jesus Christ and given him your life, no matter how relatively good you may be compared to others in this life, it's all to no avail. I'm sure all of you know if you've been reading the newspapers or anything the past week or two that today, Sunday, today, is the 100th anniversary to the day of the Titanic hitting the iceberg, sinking. So think of the people on the Titanic when that great ship sank. The only question was this, really. Did you get into a lifeboat or not? And we know there weren't enough lifeboats. If you didn't make it into the lifeboat and you're floating in ice water, it doesn't matter that you may be able to swim twice as fast as the guy next to you. It, may, it doesn't matter that you may be able to hold your breath longer than anyone else around you. It doesn't matter even if you're wearing a flotation device and that ICC. The question is, did you get into a lifeboat or not? No, the fact is that if you're in the water, you have no hope. Your only hope is to get into a lifeboat and to carry the analogy, Jesus Christ is the only life lifeboat for our sinful souls. He is the only hope. When I was in high school, I had heard a lot about Jesus Christ. I had gone to church all my life. My parents took us to church. Some of you know, I always got that 52-week Sunday school pin for being there every week. But whenever I thought about things like death and judgment, which I really tried not to think about that much, and I didn't think about them that much, But I did from time to time, and I'd think about them often at bedtime when I said my prayers. You know, I said my prayers at bedtime. I thought that Christianity taught that if you tried to be good, and if you didn't do anything really bad, then hopefully on Judgment Day, if there was such a day, you'd be okay. Yes, I knew that Jesus was supposed to help in some way. I had become a communicant member of the church. But basically, as I look back on how I thought about Christianity, I was banking on coming through Judgment Day somehow on my own merits. I was pretty good. I worked hard at school. For the most part, I obeyed my parents. I mean, maybe sometimes I didn't, but, but what I came to 
see when I was 19 and, and the gospel became clear to me and I had a close friend who shared the gospel with me, I started to understand the very thing we find here in verse, in verse 8, our only hope is to know God through faith in Jesus Christ, to believe the gospel, to be hidden in Jesus Christ through his righteousness. That truth came shattering through my mind and heart with clarity. It was, it was as if all the hymns and, and all the scriptures I'd ever heard now made sense that Jesus Christ is the only way. And so faith in Christ is the only refuge with the judgment of Christ bearing down on us. The other point under the judgment of Christ here is, is this. The only thing that we see about Christ's judgment here, the other thing that we see is this. The essence of hell is punishment for sin and complete separation from the presence of God. The essence of hell is punishment for sin and complete separation from the gracious presence of the Lord, the blessed presence of the Lord. Look at verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This is really, if not the most, one of the most difficult biblical truths to talk about. It's certainly something that we should never joke about. I don't believe Christians should ever joke about hell. To imagine someone we know and love experiencing what this verse describes is something that we rightly draw back from in this life with horror to contemplate what verse 9 describes. And yet this is God's word. What would it be like to be separated from God completely? Think of it this way. Everyone in this room, every person on this earth knows something. Unbeliever and believer alike experiences something of the thousands of benefits and blessing God pours out on us constantly. Things like the dogwoods in bloom as you drive home, if it's not dark yet. You know, the beautiful flowering trees, food that you eat every day and sustains you, the very air you breathe, the water you drink the blue sky that you get to see, smiles from other human beings. All these flow from the fountain of blessing of God, the presence and the grace of God. And you may hear this, this verse speaking about being shut out from the presence of the Lord, and maybe you don't know God. Maybe you haven't put your faith in Christ, and maybe you're resisting that in some way. And you think to yourself, well, That won't be so bad, really, maybe. I've lived my whole life apart from God. But the truth is that even if you've lived your entire life up till now in rebellion against the Lord, you still haven't experienced, really, ultimate separation from the gracious presence of God because every day you're experiencing gracious elements of the good gifts of God. And in hell, there will be will be no such good gifts. None of God's good gifts, not an ounce of God's gracious presence, only, as we're told in this verse, the abiding wrath of God and just punishment on all sin. You know, I stand here today before you, and it's a beautiful evening. We see the sun shining out there. It's a nice day, warm. It's just hard to believe this, isn't it? It's the truth of God. 
And even on a beautiful evening like this, it's hard to reflect on this truth. But that is the judgment that Jesus Christ will bring. The day of salvation will be at an end. The long-suffering of God will have come to an end at the glorious appearing. He comes to judge the living and the dead. Let me, before we leave this point, let me bring home a word of application here, and that is this. If you do not know Christ and you're considering the claims of Christ, I urge you to remember the urgency of your need to turn to him. You don't know whether you will leave this life tomorrow. You, you do not know whether you will leave this life tonight on the way home. It's unlikely, I know. But the Titanic is a good analogy of this. If the Titanic has sunk and we are all in, our frigid, in the frigid water because of our sins, and Jesus Christ is the only lifeboat, and we could push the analogy and say, actually, Ephesians 2 says we're dead in trespasses and sins. So we're already in the water and we're no longer alive. And it's only through faith in him, through the new life that he gives, that we will be spared the dread judgment of that day. It's only a gift of him. He is the one who gives new life. Jesus is the only way, and so put your trust in him. Some of you might also think, well, isn't that very narrow? Well, Second Thessalonians chapter 1 is a very narrow text, isn't it? This is what the word of God says. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When you hear that, if you're having a hard time with that, I hope that you don't hear arrogance. It's not arrogance because Christianity is just saying there's no difference. It's true for all of us. We all need to enter through the way, the truth, and the life. We are all hopeless apart from Christ. Christians don't set themselves up and say we're better in any way. It's the opposite. We're just as much in need of the grace of God as everyone else who hasn't come to Christ. And if Jesus Christ did not have to die, you might think, well, that would have been the way I would have done it. But Jesus Christ did have to die because of our sin. And if you say that somehow you don't really need his death for your sins, then you are actually making light of despising the cross of Christ. You are counting it of no value if you are saying that somehow you, you think you'll be fine without it. And so my application is this. Find refuge in the Son of God before that day of his appearing comes, that you may be found in him. Our second point is this. Christ will come as the comforter of his people. Look at verses 6 and 7. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, that's a play on words, it's from the Greek word that we get our word tribulation. He will repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed. And then in verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at among all those who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Here we see the joyful relief and blessedness of that day for all who belong to Christ. Jesus comes as the comforter of those who belong to him. These new believers have been experiencing persecution. And verse 6 is saying 
with, with this play of words there, that the Lord, when he comes, will repay back affliction to those who are afflicting them, to those who are in Christ. He will afflict the ones persecuting them, in other words. And that's speaking of the judgment to come. But verse 7 speaks of the comfort that God is going to give, the relief he's going to give to those who are afflicted. I really don't think it's that easy for us in the United States to identify with a degree of comfort that Christ's return will be to the severely persecuted church. I went online to Open Doors, which is one website that highlights the persecuted church around the world. I thought, well, let me look for persecuted church stories and see what I can find. And I just went on and started reading. Page one, there are about 10 of them. Page two, there are about 10 more. Page three, 10 more. Just go on. Do you know that more Christians were martyred for their faith last century, in the 20th century, than all the other centuries of the church combined? And it just keeps going that way. If you go to that website and other websites as well, you can just read of the persecution. One was a story of a young Christian female believer in Pakistan attending the Presbyterian church there. There's a Presbyterian sister in the Lord, and she had just baked bread on a Monday afternoon to go to the, prayer, the Bible study at the church down the street, and she heard a commotion out in the street, thought it was some young boys playing with sticks, went out, and saw a mob heading to the church. And she just immediately ran to try to warn those at the church, but they cut her off, and she was killed. That's happening. That just happened a month or two ago. This is happening all the time. I don't think that you and I in the West identify with the degree of comfort that the return of Christ is going to bring for those who are severely experiencing persecution for their faith. I think of the example of a POW, a prisoner of war in North Vietnam, that the book is entitled, In the Presence of My Enemies. This man spent seven years in Hanoi Hilton, as it was called then, the prisoner of war, one of the uh, prisons of North Vietnam. And it was a terrible experience. But God used this intense suffering to strengthen this man's faith and the men who were with him. They would secretly pass around little scraps of Scripture by any possible means in that prison to encourage one another. They would tap out messages of hope and encouragement in the Word of God and code through the walls of that prison, and they were able to persevere. But every day, they intensely hoped for liberation, for freedom. And of course, finally, one day, it came. That's what the coming of Jesus Christ will bring to every suffering believer. Comfort, relief, joyful reunion with Jesus Christ. No more suffering. No more struggle with sin. Don't we long for that? No more spiritual warfare. And note how verse 10 describes that day. When, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. We're going to marvel at Jesus Christ. It's going to be an amazing day. I think of when the Apollo astronauts in 1969 returned from their historic mission to the moon. They had walked on the moon. They came back. And those of you who were alive, remember, they were hailed as conquering heroes. It was marvelous. They were glorified. They were marveled at. They had done great things. But think if they had left this universe. Think if they had been gone for thousands of years. 
Think if they had over, somehow overcome death itself. Well, you see the direction I'm going. That's what Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ, what a greater mission Jesus Christ accomplished. And when he finally comes again, it's going to be the most public, noisy, incredible day in all of history when he comes to be glorified among believers and marveled at. Mourning for those who do not know him, the scriptures say, but great celebration and relief for every child of God. Christ will come as the comforter of his people. Well, let's look at a couple applications of this second point. One is this. It is good and right for Christians to find comfort in the righteous judgment of God. It is good and right for Christians to find comfort in the righteous judgment of God. This may seem strange or it may seem harsh, but look at the fact that in this passage, the apostle is comforting these Christians with the truth that God will finally bring judgment on their persecutors. Of course, if the persecutors do not come to Christ themselves. In other words, he's comforting Christians with the truth of coming judgment. And we can't shy back from that. We have to believe and teach and hold to all that Scripture believes, teaches, and holds to, as much as it reveals to us. A few years ago, we heard the startling news, maybe you remember, Remember that two teenage girls in Indonesia were kidnapped on their way home from their Christian high school, and soon after they were beheaded by Muslim terrorists who had kidnapped them. And I asked myself at the time, how would I have reacted if one of those daughters had been my daughter? Grief, certainly. Anger, I would have been ready to kill someone, I think. You know, that's my initial reaction. Numbing loss, yes, all that's true. But in some way, Scripture is saying that in such situations, it is right to take comfort in God's justice. There is is coming a day, you see, when he will will right every wrong. Just look at another text or two with me about this. 1 Peter 4. Turn back to 1 Peter 4. Hear Peter describing the same thing. 1 Peter 4, verses 3 through 5. Peter is urging Christians there to live for the Lord. And in verse 3, he exhorts them, he says, The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So he's saying, don't, don't live the way you used to live. You Gentiles who used to be living in debauchery and lawlessness and all these things. Verse 4, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So Peter's saying, when you stop living sinful lives, your old friends are very likely going to start maligning you and opposing you. How should Christians think about that? Verse 5 tells us, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You see how that's tied in there. In the chapter right before here, Peter has said, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you, a familiar verse to us all, an evangelism verse, be ready to give an answer. But here, if you're being maligned, if you're being opposed, to some degree, it is right for Christians to take comfort in the judgment of God. 
often we find allusions to the judgment of God like this tucked in again and again. Uh, turn the other direction to, to 2 Timothy 4. Here's an interesting verse. You've probably never heard a sermon on this. 2 Timothy 4, verses 14 and 15. Here's Paul near the end of his ministry, this gracious, godly man who certainly has a heart of Christ-like love for others, preaching the gospel to the lost. Paul, who was a persecutor of the church as well. But look at this allusion here to this one man. He says, verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. There's this little allusion tucked in there. Paul is somehow saying, God will judge this man. Now, I'm sure Paul is also praying for this man in the sense that would he come to the gospel, come to know Christ? There was a sense in, in which Paul saying, this man did me great harm. He opposed the gospel. He is opposing the work of Christ. And he's not afraid to say, may God repay him for his deeds. The mysterious and almost contradictory thing about all of this is this. At the same time that you and I take comfort in God's judgment, we must also be praying for our persecutors. We must be loving our enemies. We must be praying for them, especially praying that the judgment that is due to them might be swallowed up in God's mercy as they come to faith in Christ. If we are to bless them, and the scriptures say bless our enemies, then certainly the greatest blessing we could pray for is for them to come to know Christ. So what I'm saying is those two points are not contradictory points. To be blessing your enemies and praying that they come to Christ, but also taking comfort that if they don't, the Lord's judgment will come. The justice of God will be done. Both of those are to be part of our Christian psychology, so to speak. Longing for God's judgment to be revealed, yet doing so without personal vindictiveness. I don't think Paul was speaking about Alexander in a personally vindictive way. Without a spirit of revenge. You see, this is letting God be God. And God is the one who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Both of those can be held at the same time. And when Jesus was going to the cross, when he was being insulted and not retaliating, Peter tells us that he was entrusting himself to him who judges justly, to his Father. And that's what you and I are called to do as well. So what's your experience of this? Maybe you're an abused wife. Maybe you were victimized and abused as a child. Well, if that's happening now, my word to you would certainly be to find help, to go to someone you can trust to take radical action. But in addition to all practical considerations, I would hope that you could take comfort in God's just judgment. To those who are oppressed, to those who've been victimized in this life, Scripture has passage after passage that gives us encouragement and comfort by the ultimate judgment of God that will be administered through Christ. Maybe for some here, you've lost a job because of faithfulness to Christ in some way. Or maybe your suffering is just a matter of ridicule and mocking at school with some of your friends, mocking you for your faith of Christ. Maybe some of you young folks have experienced that. Maybe you don't have to worry about being beheaded by your faith. I hope not. Not 
not around here, but it still is not easy to face the scorn of your peers. And so we need to follow our Savior in this way to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. The reality of Christ's coming helps us to entrust ourselves to him. The other application I was, that I want to draw one more, this one more, is this. When we actively remember Christ's return, we will be energized to do God's will and to live for his glory. When we actively remember Christ's return, we will be energized to do his will today, this week, to live holy lives and to live for his glory. Verses 11 and 12 describe this of our text. Paul says, To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Paul saying, To this end, with Christ's return in mind and looking to that great end, we pray that God would count you worthy of his calling. Meditating on Christ's return energizes you to live for God's will. What a glorious thing this is. Christian, you're caught up in something much more noble, much higher than just living for yourself this week. Your life is more than just your weekly paycheck, your weekly job. Your life is more than just getting good grades at school so you can get to a good college and get a good job and take care of yourself and make a lot of money. Your life is more than personal comfort and ease. History is rapidly coming to an end. Our lives are like a wisp of morning mist. And the goal is that the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 12, may be glorified in you, in me. That's the goal. Many years ago, I heard a powerful sermon on this theme of the return of Christ. The preacher was talking about looking forward to the day of Christ, and he made a connection with something that's always stuck in my mind. He said, what do you think about at the mundane moments of your life, like when you're filling your car with gas? And that illustration has always stayed in my mind. He said something like this, when you're filling your car with gas, let it be a time to stop and to look up and remember that your redemption is drawing near. So ever since then, I've tended to remember that when I get gas. And, you know, nowadays I might be tempted to be muttering about the price of gas uh, with the prices that they are. But what a better time to reorient your mind to the thought of Jesus' return. So not just when you're getting gas, but I hope that throughout the week, there are times that you stop and think, lift up my head. My redemption is drawing nigh. Jesus Christ is coming. It puts our lives in a different perspective. It shows that we're living for something beyond what's immediately before us this day or this week. I need to be about the business of living for Christ's glory, doing the will of God, knowing him and making him known because very, very soon we will all be standing before him. From thence he shall come to judge the quick, and the dead. Father, we pray that you would deeply anchor this truth into us. We know it. We know the reality of it. We have heard it before, and yet we lose sight of it so easily. Help us to take it to heart, whether it is in some degree of suffering 
or opposition we may be experiencing, that uh, it's difficult to stand for Christ in the circumstance of our job or our school or neighborhood or whether it's in light of a chronic suffering that we're experiencing that we just can't wait to be done with and to see you face to face, whether it's with opportunity before us to make you known to neighbors, to people around us, help us to have that sense of urgency and to be looking to you. Thank you that you, Lord Jesus, will come to judge the living and the dead. And in your name we pray. Amen.